0: Good to be with you. Good to see you. Those of you that are here on campus and those online, welcome. Glad you're here. Take your Bible and turn to John chapter 14, and we will get there in a few minutes. You know, all communication experts talk about how difficult it is to hear what someone is saying and then rightly interpret the meaning of what they're saying And you know that's true. I mean, you hear your husband say, now, I'm gonna be a little bit late tonight, but you didn't know a little late meant two hours late. Uh, You heard your kids say, yes, mom, I'll clean up my room after school, but you didn't know after school meant 11.30 at night. Your very best friend is all excited when he tells you, hey, I got two free tickets to the Clemson game next Saturday, and you thought he was inviting you, but he's actually had invited somebody else. Uh, You hear your boss say, this is going to be a great Christmas for everyone in the office and you think that means a big fat bonus check like Clark uh, Clark Griswold, uh, but he actually only meant he was having everybody over to his house for a low budget party. I mean, we are forever hearing someone say something and we think we know what they mean but then we find out that what we heard was not what they meant. Years ago, I was reading the Harvard Business Review. Yes, the Harvard, yeah, I mean, you, you doubt me. You, you don't think that I would read something like that. Anyway, I was reading HBR, and I ran across an article by a na- guy named Robert Katz entitled, Human Relations Skills Can Be Sharpened. And one of the big ahas for me in the article was this statement. He says, virtually every problem in human relations stems from a difference in perception. Two or more people viewing the same situation in different ways. He, He goes on and he says each individual's perceptions tend to be distorted by the values that he brings into the situation. And then he says the values stem from... Past experiences, expe- past or expectations of how you think people should behave in certain situations, um, the person's sent- sentiments and loyalties and likes and dislikes that these built up over time, uh, our, va- our our values are are shaped by our attitudes about ourself, that kind of thing, the obligations that you might feel towards other people, um, all kinds of things, your ideals. The ways that you think people should behave, um, and your own objectives and goals in that particular situation, and he provides this graphic that I call the perception filter. Now, you don't have to—you don't have to read. Uh, be able to read everything on the screen. I just want you to see how these factors, past experiences, your expectations, your ideals, your likes and your dislikes and your wishes and your wants, your beliefs about the kind of person you are or would like to be, all these things color your interpretations of the real life situations that we find ourselves in. Now, of course, some of these beliefs and assumptions are extremely useful in helping us act and react in daily life, but sometimes our filters get in the way, and they keep us uh, from seeing what's really going on or from hearing what's really being said. Now, the problem is our filters are so much a part of who we are, we're not even aware of them. And that's why sometimes uh, what we think someone is saying is actually not what they're saying at all. And so, you know, what do we do about that? Now, this past Friday in our uh, community Bible reading journal reading from Mark chapter 4, Jesus said, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. But, But how can we hear and interpret what Jesus is saying when our filters sometimes hinder us from hearing what he is saying. And this was one of the problems that Jesus' disciples faced uh, around the uh, Passover dinner table on the night in which Jesus was betrayed. Not only did they not understand much of what Jesus was saying, but their beliefs and assumptions colored their expectations about the kind of Messiah that they uh, expected Jesus to be. And not only that, their expectations also kept them from understanding the amazing promises that Jesus was making to them that night. Our text is John 14, which fits into the larger context of chapters 13 through 16, which we typically call the upper room discourse. And this teaching of Jesus, by the way, is not found in the other three gospels. Only John records it. And he records it in detail. This is Jesus last night with his disciples. And as we saw last week, Jesus says some very shocking and troubling things. He says, One of you will betray me. He says, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before dawn. He says, and this is worst of all, he says, I'm going away and I'm leaving you. And they the disciples hear what he's saying, but when, they, when those things go through their perception filters, they can't make any of it make any sense. But he also makes them these amazing promises, which at that time they didn't understand either. So this is Jesus' final will and testament to his apostles. It's a moment like no other moment in the life of the disciples, nor in the life of our Lord. Everything he says here and that we're going to look at this morning, has an immediate application to these 11 men, but it also has an extended application to all of us, to all of Jesus' disciples all through history. And we know that because he seals these promises found in chapters 13 through 16, he seals them with a prayer saying that very thing in John 17. The same night, Jesus prays, I pray not only for these, but for all who will believe in me through them. So he's extending these promises to all of us. So in chapters 13 to 16, he makes amazing promises. In chapter 17, he prays that the Father would fulfill those promises. Now, Jesus has said all these troubling things uh, in chapter 13, and that leaves the disciples confused and anxious and worried and fearful. They heard what he said, but they didn't know what he meant. He said, I'm leaving you. Uh, They hear what he's saying, but they can't make sense because their beliefs and assumptions about the uh, Messiah inform them that Messiahs set up kingdoms. They don't leave when the revolution is about to begin. Previously, Jesus has told them in detail that he will die. He said, I will be arrested by the chief priests and the leaders of Israel. I will be beaten. I will be spat upon. I will be abused. I'll be lifted up. I'll be crucified. But again, their beliefs and assumptions about the Messiah convinced them that Messiahs don't die on Roman crosses. Come on. I mean, they heard what he said, but they had no idea what he meant by what he said, and they're completely bewildered their dreams and ambitions are crumbling they're confused and so Jesus says in chapter 14 verse 1 let not your heart be troubled believe in God believe also in me now stop right there a transition is about to happen all these words speak to are these words speak to that transition now i'm going to say more about that in just a moment but i want you to follow along keep that in mind follow along as i read Verses 1 through 14, I'm going to cover the passage we did last week and take it forward into the two promises found in 12 and 14. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him, the Father. Philip said to him, Lord, just show us the Father and that will be enough for us. And Jesus said, Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Here's our passage for today. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I didn't talk about this much last week, but all through this passage... One of the main themes is Jesus and the Father. It's Jesus and the Father all the way through. The Father's in me, I'm in the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father will do this, I will do this. So he's showing us his intimate, essential connection to God the Father, which is absolutely critical. Look back at verse 1. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In other words, there's a transition about to take place, and he's saying, get this, he's saying, I'm leaving, and I'm handing you over to the Father. I'm handing you over to God. He's told them a number of times, I go to my Father, I go to my Father, I go to my Father. He said that. And they understand that God is the Father of Jesus. They knew that he was the Son of God. And he's saying, I am going to the Father and they're troubled by this. They're deeply troubled. And he, so he's saying, you need, to the, you need to come to the place where you believe in the Father the same way that you believe in me. Now, what makes this challenging is they've seen Jesus. They see him sitting there at the dinner table with them. They were physically present with him. And because they were present with him, Jesus provided for them. He provided food. He provided shelter. On one occasion, he paid their taxes for them. That'd be pretty nice. Uh, and so, and he and he protected them. He he taught them the truth about the kingdom of God. He answered every question they had about God and life and faith. He's been the their source of instruction and wisdom and strength. He's been their hope for the future. And now he's. Now he's saying, I'm leaving. I'm handing you off to the Father. And they have to be able to trust the Father like they trust him. And oh, he prayed this very same thing in John 17. He said, Father, I have fulfilled your will. I've taken care of those that you have given to me. Now, Father, I give them to you. You take care of them. That's the prayer in John 17. That's the prayer regarding the transition that's about to take place. Now, here's the point. They had been with Jesus physically present with Jesus, they saw Jesus, heard Jesus, they could touch Jesus, now he's leaving them, leaving them and he's going back to the Father. He's handing them over to the Father who is what? Unseen, invisible. How's that gonna work? Jesus put it this way to Philip. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. What he's, what he's actually saying is, you have seen me and it's true, I know you can't see the Father, But if you've seen me, you've seen the the Father. But they're having a hard time being sure that God will relate to them the same way that Jesus related to them. Or that God will care for them the same way Jesus had cared for them. Or that God will protect them the same way Jesus had protected them. Or that God would provide for them the same way that Jesus had provided for them. Huge transition is about to take place. And again, they hear what Jesus is saying, but they don't know what he means. Their perception filters cause them to try to make sense of what Jesus is saying in ways that make sense to them. Like, Thomas, we don't know where you're going. We don't know the way where you're going. Where are you going? Are you going to Samaria or Rome? Like, which road are you going to take? We can follow you there. That's no problem. And, Philip, Jesus, just show us the Father. Like, Moses saw the backside of God when he was on the mountain. So, just show us the Father. Let us see the Father. You see what I mean? Jesus says, I'm going away. I'm handing you off to the Father. I know you can't see the Father, but in seeing me, you've seen the Father. We're exactly alike. And he wants to assure them that after he's gone, that God will care for them the same way he did, that God will protect you, uh, protect them and provide for them and teach them just like he had. Now, that truth sets up the whole point, the big idea of everything Jesus is gonna promise them and teach them for the rest of the evening. He wants to calm their fears. He's addressing the things that troubled them. He's assuring them, listen, he's assuring them that being handed over to the Father, being handed over to the care of God is better for them. Not just okay, not just good, it's better. If you fast forward to chapter 16, verse 7, he says, I'm telling you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. Again, their perception filters would make that statement difficult to understand. I mean, how could anything be better than having Jesus with you all the time? It's, it's to your advantage that I go away. Uh, Jesus wants them to understand that being, being handed over to the care of the Father is better for them because, here's the deal, because Jesus being with them physically had certain limits. Jesus was physically present with them for three years, but he wasn't always in their immediate presence. Sometimes he went off by himself and he prayed. Sometimes he sent them off to do ministry and uh, Jesus stayed behind. So Jesus wasn't with them even when he was physically present with them. But, but he would. He, what he's promising is that he would always be with them by being in them after he returned to the Father. His power, they saw his power, they experienced his power. This power was always available when the Spirit led Jesus to work miracles, and they saw that power. And again, they experienced it, but they were about to experience Jesus' power in a way that was way beyond what they ever imagined. And Jesus, yes, he had provided resources for them, physical resources, the things that they needed in life, but he was about to open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing way beyond what they had previously experienced. But they just didn't understand what he meant by what he was saying. And that was deeply troubling. So to comfort them, Jesus makes them a series of amazing promises. Now last week we looked at the first promise that was found in uh, verses uh, two and three. And we looked how, how, at how what he says in verses 2 and 3 about going to prepare a place and where I am, I'll, I'll come again and receive you to myself, we looked at how Jesus himself said that was figurative language. He says that over in chapter 16, 25 to 30. He was using figurative language, which the truth is, no matter how much he explained about it, they're not going to understand it when they run it through their perception filter until, after he was gone and until the Holy Spirit came back, but Jesus I said this last week, had he spoken plainly, this is what he was saying. He's saying to those men that night, I know that the things I've said to you are deeply disturbing. I know you're confused and worried and afraid, but don't let your emotions overpower you. Trust what I'm telling you because, you see, it's to your advantage that I go to the Father. In the Father's presence, there's room for all of you. I'm preparing the way for you to have a permanent abiding place in the presence of the Father. I'm going to die, I'm coming back to life to open the way for you to enjoy a relationship with God the way that I have enjoyed my relationship with God. So trust me, I'll come back to you in the person of Holy Spirit and I'll not only be with you, I'll be in you forever. Something like that. In other words, the first promise spoken plainly is I'm going to the cross to prepare a permanent abiding place for you in the Father's presence. I'm going to the cross and I'm preparing a way for you to enjoy a relationship with the Father the way I've enjoyed my relationship with the Father. That's the first promise. The promise of God's abiding presence. Now, Jesus goes on to make two more amazing promises designed to comfort their troubled hearts and to assure them that it really is better that he leave them and return to the Father. Look at him in verses 12 through 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Here's the transition, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, I think, Wow. I mean, I think you would agree that those are two of the most amazing promises that Jesus ever made, right? I mean, let's just, let's just put them simply. Jesus is saying, those who believe in me will do the works that I have done and even greater works than I have done. And he says, I'll do whatever you ask in my name. That pretty much sums it up, right? So how do you hear what Jesus is saying here? Now, we typically hear these promises, and we try to make sense out of them one of two ways. First, uh, our perception filter, we hear these promises, or we read the promises, and then we interpret them through our filter of past experiences and the teachings of different churches, through our likes and dislikes or our wants and our wishes, and we hear Jesus saying, you can do everything I can do, and and I will do whatever you ask me to do as long as you tack on to the end of your prayer the words in Jesus' name, amen. Now, that's the first way. Or the second way we hear these two amazing promises that is that uh, we run them through our perception filter, but we don't have a clue as how to interpret them, and we come out the other side saying, huh? Because the fact is, we don't experience the promises the way they sound to us, and that causes many believers to feel great angst. Like, why don't we, and I hear it all the time, like, why don't we see more miracles happening in the church? I mean, Jesus promised his his followers would do greater things than he did, so why aren't we seeing more of it? Have you ever said that? You ever thought that? Well, sure you have. What about that? Hold on. And that second promise, how many of you, don't raise your hand, how many of you have gotten frustrated with God because you prayed for something? Uh, and you ask God for something, and you always end your prayers with in the name of Jesus, but you didn't get the thing that you prayed for, right? Uh, but, But isn't that what Jesus is saying? Look at verse 13. He says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do. And he didn't just say it once. He says it twice. Verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. But he didn't do it. He didn't do the thing that you ask him to do, and you put in Jesus' name at the end of it, and that left you confused and not a little frustrated with God. I mean, we hear what Jesus promises here. We understand each word and how, how those words make a sentence. We think we know what he means, but we don't experience what he says. So what, what are we missing? I mean, is there some condition that we're not meeting? Do we not have enough faith Is there some hidden secret key to unlocking these promises that we just haven't yet discovered? Is the problem with God or is it with us? Now, what I'm about to explain to you, some of you are going to think, that's just a cop-out. That's just a cop-out. Some of you will not want to accept what I'm about to tell you because you want these promises to mean what it sounds like they're saying, even though you don't experience what they're saying. And so before I... Uh, explain each promise, I want to give you two sets of threes. I wish I could, I wish I'd have thought of this, but I redesigned that perception wheel where it had, had these two sets of three. Okay, here are the two sets of three. The first one is, I want to give you three rules for interpreting Scripture that will help you rightly interpret Bible verses and Bible promises. All right? When you run across things like this in Scripture, like the hard sayings of Jesus... The parables of Jesus, the promises of Jesus, and for that matter, all the promises in the Old Testament. In order to rightly interpret and apply the Word of God to your life, you have to first submit your interpretation to the larger context of Scripture. You have to see how the promises fit with everything else that is taught in scripture. And here especially how these promises fit with what Jesus has said before promise, before he makes the promises and after he makes the promises. You simply cannot rip promises out of the Bible, out of their context and set them over on a table in your little golden book of Bible promises and make them stand on their own. You can't do that with the Bible. Number two, you have to submit your interpretation to the author's original intent. In this case, first, Jesus' original intent. The question is, why did Jesus make these promises to these men on this night? How did Jesus want these men to understand and apply what he was saying even if they didn't or couldn't understand it at the time, how did he want them to come to understand these verses later after Pentecost? And three, submit your interpretation to what John, the author, wants you to believe about Jesus. Now why is that? Because John tells us in chapter 20 verse 31 the reason he wrote the book his purpose in writing was to tell us that that uh, is to call us and invite us to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have life in His name. So we have to submit our interpretation of Bible promises to these three rules for interpreting Scripture. Now that would be like on one side of the circle. If I'd have done this on the other side of the circle, oh wait, wait, wait! I'm not done. If that's too much for you, here's, here's, let me just boil it down. Here's the, here it is. The Bible cannot mean what it never meant. The Bible doesn't mean what you think, and I think it means. It means what God, the Holy Spirit, meant it to say. Bible verses and Bible promises are not formulas or magic sayings or incantations. Not all the promises in the Bible are claimable, meaning we can't claim every promise we find in the Bible because many of them were not made to us. Many of them were made to specific people living in a specific place and a specific time, and they're not meant to be ripped out of the context and claimed in any and every way we want to claim them. And by the way, if you want to dig into this whole thing about promises a little bit more, I highly recommend a book by uh, one of our missionaries who became one of my friends. I stayed in in he and his wife's home, uh, f- and when we were in Berlin, Franz Martin has a book called "I Promise," and uh, and it's a really good study in the promises of the Bible. Of the Bible. And uh, by the way, he, he and Christy, his wife, are going to be here in November, and so it'll be. I hope you get a chance to meet him. Okay. One more thing, the other side, the other set of three. Here's the other set of three. Three big picture observations about these promises so you can rightly interpret them. First of all, these two promises should be taken together, taken as a pair. Look at them. In between the two promises, we have the transitional statement, because I go to the Father. In other words, looking at the larger context, Jesus is continuing to talk about what I talked about earlier. He's saying, it's to your advantage that I return to the Father because when I do, and after you receive the Holy Spirit, you will do even greater works than I did when I was with you. It's first promise. And second, he's saying, don't worry, trust me, I'll still take care of you and provide for you just like I did when I was with you. That is the whatever you ask in my name promise or you could call it the whatever help you need, I will provide it promise. These two promises go together. And taken together, number two, these two promises are given to those who are pursuing life and mission with Jesus. These two promises are specifically made to those who are pursuing life and mission with Jesus. Again, larger context. Jesus is assuring his disciples that after he goes back to the Father, he will return to them in the person of the Holy Spirit, and then that he would be with them and in them as they carry his mission forward in the world. So what Jesus is saying here, he's saying, as you carry my work forward, you will do it in my power, verse 12, and... I and you will do it with my provision. As you carry my work forward, you will do it in my power and with my provision, verses 13 and 14. He's saying, I will empower you to do whatever the Spirit leads you to do, and I will provide whatever you need as you continue mission with me. And so it follows that the third observation is this. These promises are not meant for our personal consumption. These promises are not meant for our personal consumption. Jesus did not mean for these promises to be blanket promises that we can claim to make our lives healthier, wealthier, or more comfortable. That was not Jesus' intent at all. These are not promises for your personal consumption. Jesus made these promises to those That he will command in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. To those who were going to be about his business. About his business of carrying his mission forward in the world. let, Let me put it this way. These promises were not meant to be claimed by some disciple. Let's say disciple number 62 out of 70. Who after Jesus was gone. He decides that he's going to go back to his fishing boats and build a big fishing business. And so imagine the guy is praying one day and he's claiming these promises. Like, Jesus, you said if I ask anything in your name, you'll do it for me. So I'm asking, in your name, to make my business the biggest fishing business in all of Galilee. So let's start today. Okay, so Jesus, on which side of the boat should I cast my net today? And how about a greater catch than we got that day when you were on the water with us? After all, you said I would catch a greater amount of fish than you did, right? So please do these things for me in your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now how silly does that sound? But sadly, that's not too far off from how some Christians handled these verses. And then we wonder why the verses don't work. These promises are not meant for personal consumption. They were given to Jesus' troubled disciples so that they would believe in him. That they would believe that after he was gone, he would continue. He would give them his power to carry the mission forward. And they would go forward with his provision. Okay, so finally, we get to the promises. All right, that's, Now we have a new filter for interpretation. All right, first promise, verse 12. I'm telling you the truth, he says. Whoever believes in me, notice this is about belief, and it's not whoever believes that I'll take him to heaven when I die. There's more to the belief than that. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do. Again, Jesus is reassuring his disciples that the power they have witnessed in him will be in them after he returns to the Father and after the Holy Spirit uh, comes to dwell inside them. This is a promise about power. Now, first of all, the primary interpretation and application is to the apostles, to the 11 apostles. And Jesus is saying, you who believe in me, you believe in me so much that you're going to be involved in carrying my work forward in the world. You're going to do what I have done and even greater things will you do. Now what does he mean by that? Simply what he says. He means that those men will do miracles just like Jesus did miracles. And all you have to do is read the book of Acts. And what do you see? Promise made, promise kept. The apostles and the uh, associates of the apostles experienced the miraculous power of the Holy Spirit just like Jesus. They performed miracles over disease, miracles over demons, miracles over death. They did the same kinds of things that Jesus did. Okay, so what does he mean by you'll do greater things than I did? Like think about that. It doesn't does it mean greater in kind? Like, like Jesus walked on the water. I mean, that's pretty great. Like, what would be greater than walking on water? What, flying without the help of a Cessna 150? Or what's greater than raising the dead? Like, maybe raising a whole cemetery from the dead. M- maybe, but, I mean, have you ever heard anybody in the history of the church do something like that? I mean, why would Jesus tell those men in us that you can do greater things than, than, than I have done and it not be a fairly common occurrence if greater means greater in kind? Well, it's because greater doesn't mean greater in kind. It means greater in extent. And you see this in the book of Acts. You read how this wonder-working power was given to the apostles and to the other disciples in the early church. The power is defined for us clearly in 2 Corinthians 12:12 12, 12, where we're told that signs and wonders and miracles were the trademark of the apostles. In Hebrews 2.4, we're told that the message of the apostles, the message that they preached was confirmed by signs and wonders and mighty works done by the apostles. Again, these were not greater in kind but greater in extent because as the gospel spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, everywhere the mission of Jesus went, the miracles went. And you compare that to the fact that Jesus' entire Ministry took place in a in the tiny country of Israel, in a small region of Israel, mostly Galilee, in an area about 60 miles wide, and uh, in a few miles, uh, 60 miles long and a few miles wide. In fact, it's, it's amazing to me that the Israeli Air Force can only fly two and a half minutes east to west without crossing a border or crossing into the sea. Since the days of the apostles, the Spirit of God has empowered the church of God for global mission. That's the greater work. Global mission because, all because, Jesus said, because I go to the Father. Now, in that small area, when Jesus was with them, he was only at one place at a time. And even with the apostles, they were in specific places at specific times. And miracles were not something that they had control over. They just couldn't reach in, the, in their ministry backpack and decide to do a miracle. They did miracles when and if and how God saw fit. There's no, no record that every Christian worked miracles. No record, not in the early church or in the history of the church. But here's what did happen. After Jesus returned to the Father and after the Holy Spirit empowered his disciples, his church, what happened? Through the disciples, the gospel has encircled the entire globe. And it's continuing to move forward all the time. And at times and at, in certain places, as God sees fit, there are miracles that are done that convince people of the truth of the gospel. Those occur when God sees fit now that said there is a work a miracle that goes on all the time that is greater than anything jesus did when he walked this earth when the gospel is shared when the gospel is preached and when the holy spirit calls unbelievers to a saving knowledge of christ spiritually dead people become spiritually alive people Paul said, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy and because of his great love for us made us alive together with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places. That, folks, is truly the greatest of all miracles. Spiritually dead people made alive in Christ. And it is greater than any miracle Jesus performed when he walked this earth. And Jesus says, whoever believes in me, whoever is pursuing life and mission with me, I will strengthen you and I will empower you so you can be a part of that greater work today. That's what he's saying. Second promise, verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In the larger context, Jesus is reassuring his disciples that after he returns to the Father, the Father would continue to take care of them just as he took care of them. This is a promise about provision. First promise is about power. This is a promise about provision. Again, this promise was not meant for personal consumption. This promise is for those who are pursuing life and mission with Jesus. And Jesus is saying, listen, as you carry my work forward in the world, ask me for whatever you need. And if what you ask is consistent with what I want done, then I will give it to you. Now, I know some of you are going that's the I knew this was a cop-out. Well, see, it's a cop-out because you really want this promise to be something we can claim so we can get what we want. But that's not Jesus' intent in giving us this promise. This isn't a rub the Jesus lamp three times and genie Jesus will give you whatever you wish for. No, this is a ministry promise. A promise that God's work will never lack God's resources. So ask God for wisdom, he'll give it to you. Ask God for boldness to share the gospel. He'll give it to you. Ask God for clarity to take the next step, and he'll give it to you. Ask God for courage and resolve and confidence to confront the powers of darkness, and he will give it to you. Ask God to speak through you as you counsel, as you teach someone, as you confront someone, as you seek to encourage someone, and he will provide what you need to accomplish his work. You see, praying in the name of Jesus means praying in a way, praying for things that are consistent with God's will, consistent with God's purposes, consistent with Jesus' character, consistent with Jesus' mission, consistent with whatever work the Spirit wants done and is leading you to do. And John, same author, tells us that plainly in 1 John 5 14 and 15 where he says this is the confidence that we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will he could have just said if we ask anything in Jesus name it's the same thing if we ask anything consistent with his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know that we have what we've asked of him when we are pursuing life and mission with Jesus When we are seeking for the Spirit to lead us and guide us and use us in other people's lives, we can ask God for what we need. And if what we're asking for is in keeping with what God wants to do in that situation, he will provide whatever it is that we need. Now, how could that understanding of this amazing promise be a cop-out? Rightly interpreting these promises in this way will only sound like a cop out to those who want Jesus to be their genie, who want these promises to mean that they can use God's promised power and provision to serve their own purposes rather than God's purposes. So, three quick takeaways. First of all, you can never claim a promise based on what you think or want that promise to mean. You can never claim a promise based on what you think or want that promise to mean. Remember, the Bible cannot mean what it never meant. Bible promises cannot mean what they never meant. Bible promises cannot be ripped out of their context and be made to stand on their own as if they are some blanket promise to make us healthier or wealthier or more comfortable. No, you've got to submit your perception filter, what you think the Bible is saying, to what it is actually saying And sometimes figuring all this out takes some digging. It takes some work. That's why Paul commends us to be work people who don't need to be ashamed that we rightly handle the word of truth. Second takeaway, as we seek to carry Jesus' mission forward here in Greenville and around the world, we can absolutely, for certain, with confidence, count on God to give us everything we need for the work he's called us to do. I mean, I think that is absolutely amazing. We can absolutely, for certain, with confidence, count on God to give us everything we need for the work that he wants done. So we can and should and do expect God to show up in power in unexpected ways. We can and should and do expect God to provide everything we need to accomplish his work that he wants done in ways that are far beyond what we can think or imagine. But third, what's John's purpose? He wants us to believe in Jesus. Don't miss the obvious here. Do you see that everything we've looked at this morning, these two amazing promises that Jesus has made to us, it's all set in the larger context of how much he loves these disciples who just don't get it. Do you see how patient he is, how kind and gracious and merciful he is with them? Do you understand that's the way he is with you? We hear what he says, but we don't always understand what he means. We are often troubled by the worries and fears and confusion about how God's working in the world. We struggle to put what Jesus says into practice just like they did. But still, Jesus abides with us. He abides with you. He is with you and for you and in you. And if you have believed in him, put your trust in him, he promises that he will never leave you or forsake you. That's the promise above and behind and sideways and under and over these two promises. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's promised to give you everything that you need for life and godliness and mission. So the third point is worship Jesus. Worship Jesus. He who is so patient, so kind, so gracious, so merciful to all of us, his troubled disciples. He who gives us the most amazing promises to assure us of his never-ending love and faithfulness. Worship Jesus, who went to the Father, who came back in the person of the Holy Spirit, who will one day come again to take us to himself, that where he is, we will always be in the presence of God and all the host of heaven amen amen come holy spirit open our eyes to see and our ears to hear these amazing promises thank you jesus that as we walk with you as we seek to be on mission with you that you promise us That you will show up in unexpected ways. And if if we set aside time, person after person could share ways that were beyond anything we could imagine about how you showed up and made someone who was dead in trespasses and sins alive. And we got to be a part of seeing that happen. Nothing greater than that. Thank you that we get to see that and get to be a part of it in this church. Thank you that as we walk with you and as we carry on mission with you, that when we we run into obstacles, when we can't see the way in front of us, when we're scared to speak up, you tell us, that you'll give us whatever we need, that you'll provide us wisdom and courage and boldness and grace and compassion. You'll strengthen us with your truth so that we can put Jesus on display and in putting him on display, it brings glory to the Father. Holy Spirit, make these promises real in our lives personally and in the life of this church. In the strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.